0: Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. First off, if you're listening in the Rocky Mountain region, you might be interested in a podcast called Colorado Edition. It's a production of KUNC, the public radio station in Greeley, and it's our sponsor for this episode. Colorado Edition brings you the context behind the news of the day and a look at the people, places, and things that make the Centennial State unique. In less than 30 minutes, they'll get you up to speed on the most important news, plus they'll bring you a deeper look at the stories that matter in Colorado communities. And because life is a mix of work and play, they also explore the lighter side of news, highlighting culture, the arts, and the outdoors across the Mountain West. Colorado Edition airs Monday through Thursday evenings at 6.30 on KUNC, and you can also find the show wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're bringing you a special guest episode from an Australian podcast called Brain on Nature. Brain on Nature is about how going out into the natural world changed one woman's brain. It's a serial show. In other words, you're supposed to start with episode one and listen sequentially. We're actually going to play you episode two today. But don't worry, we'll first have a chat with the show's host, so you'll know exactly what's going on. So my name's Sarah
1: Ellerly and I live in Sydney, Australia, but I'm originally from New Zealand. So how did this podcast come about? So in 2015 I was knocked off my bike by a car and suffered a, a mild traumatic brain injury and I initially didn't know what was happening and I just I spent several months uh, really struggling with sounds particularly like I really uh, everything was at the same volume and so I couldn't I found it very difficult to sit in a room full of people. Couldn't go to a, sit in a cafe or a bar or anything noisy like that. Just even walking into my daughter's uh, school to drop them off and pick them up. I found the playground sounds just unbearable. And it was like, it was almost like the the way when I uh, record on my um, audio recorder and everything sort of picks up at the same volume. It was like my brain was doing that. It couldn't separate anything. And I found it very hard to, focus and concentrate. Eventually I found a, a method of recovering from my brain injury which was to use nature and I didn't know anything about this at all beforehand, it was something that I just stumbled across in my own, in my own experiences outside and so I decided, I thought well you know, the rest of the world needs to know about this. And this was a few years ago, I feel like there's been a lot more uh, talk about people using nature to change their brains and heal themselves in the last few years. Back back in 2015 and 2016, I, I don't think there was quite as much research around it. And I initially thought, because I was working in television before I had my accident, I initially thought I'd make a film documentary. And then I thought, you know, this is actually a really good audio story because the sounds were such a big
0: thing for me. So tell me more about the accident. What, what happened there?
1: So I was on my way to an exercise class, uh, literally five minutes bike ride from my house. Jumped on my bike. It was just before eight o'clock on a Saturday morning. The streets were quiet. Uh, I rode down through a a roundabout and into a sort of a dead-end street where cyclists were allowed to ride and it was a very quiet intersection Uh, but I think so quiet that a car perhaps wasn't expecting to see me and the car was cut a corner and I t-boned this car but I didn't know any of this I only know this from what the police told me when I went to um I had to go and be interviewed by the police and so that's what I I of, what happened for me was I was riding my bike and came through this roundabout passed into this uh dead-end street and the next thing I woke up on the the road and intense pain and there were people around me telling me not to get up and telling me that there
0: was an ambulance on the way. What was the first indication to you that something was off with your brain?
1: I think it was it was the next day, the next morning. I I woke up and I tried to read the novel that I'd been reading before, and I started trying to read this book that and I I couldn't understand it. Like I I could my eyes could travel over the words, but I just got this intense headache, and I just didn't I couldn't understand it. It was like I was reading some mumbo jumbo like in another language and I was just like oh my god I can't read and that just completely freaked me out because I loved reading it was very scary
0: and so as you said um you ended up sort of by accident turning to nature as a way of of healing from this this brain injury so what is can you can you describe a little bit what's the change that happened for you when you would be out in nature, um, you know, how that affected how your brain was doing?
1: So I first noticed, um, before I even had joined the dots, it took me quite a while to join the dots and make the connection, but I just was noticing uh, that I was sitting out in my garden, you know, in in that first few weeks. All I could do was to literally sit out in my back garden and stare up at the trees. And I remember being very grateful for the fact that I had a backyard that wasn't living in an apartment. And I would just sit out there and, and, and found that that was the only way that I
0: would not get a headache. So what is it um, about nature that can help a brain heal? Like why does that happen?
1: Wow, well, that's sort of the million-dollar question. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I spoke to a lot of different experts, and some of them which are included in the series. Uh, and I think there's different ideas about this, but I think what the the overarching theme seems to be that like one of the major themes is that it's the opposite of screens right so it's like spending time in nature has never been more important than it is now because we're all spending less time outside and we're all spending more time on screens and screens were the thing that you know really aggravated me particularly my phone I just had to just could not go on it and well and they always say even
0: with just a concussion that you're not supposed to have screen time that's exactly but
1: I was never told that right so I was no I, I definitely I was not it wasn't I was told that by my doctors eventually but not initially so I had to sort of figure that out mm. along the way and so I think what it is is that nature's softly fascinating it stimulates our brains in a way that is I guess gentle but still uh, allows our brains to rest so you go outside and you stare at the trees and you stare at the the ripples in the water and it, it's it's not boring like sitting in a empty room. It's it's making your brain uh do a little bit of work but also allowing your brain to rest.
0: What was it like putting together a documentary podcast series like this when when you're you're essentially telling the story of a time when your memory was kind of fuzzy, you know, because you had this brain injury. Did you did you worry that you weren't gonna remember things right? So I
1: had, um, probably because I'm a journalist, I had kept quite meticulous uh, notes. Not not like I wasn't able to keep a journal, but what I had done is because my doctors always had a million questions for me, like how many headaches have you had and what stimulates them and what aggravates them and what makes you feel better. I'd sort of had like literally headache diaries, but also I just had notes about yeah notes about how i'd been feeling at, at times and and different um changes and in, in things and i had sort of doctor's notes so i had like quite thick medical files that i actually went back through and when i so because i couldn't write with my I had my shoulder in a sling and i was uh, just struggled to sort of write anyway i did uh, keep a few audio diaries. And, and then I also interviewed a lot of friends. So I interviewed a lot of friends who, um, as you can hear in the series, they were like, yeah, you were really different. And it was really straight, you know, being around you, you'd do this and you'd say this. And so that was, I felt like quite a, a good source of info as well.
0: What do you hope, uh, listeners will take away from your show? I think like the big picture, I, I guess
1: what sort of motivated me to, to, to spend so much time making this was i hope that people will appreciate how important the natural world is and then actually want to look after and preserve it you know that we shouldn't be cutting down forests and we shouldn't be overdeveloping beaches and we need green spaces and we need to uh you know allow people to have uh to access that um because we all benefit from it like you don't have to have a brain injury for this to be relevant. It's like the researchers I spoke to just talk about how spending time in the natural world is good for all of our mental health, all of our creativity, all of our focus and concentration. So it's, it's, we, we all benefited from it.
0: Well, Sarah, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks, Willow. It was really great to talk to you too. Sarah Allely is the host of Brain on Nature. Without further ado, here's episode two of her show.
1: This injuries made me reflect on what the load on my brain was like before the accident. It's a few weeks before my bike crash. I'm on the train going into the city to find my daughter some shoes. I'm on my phone, checking my emails, searching for which shop to head to. My kids are fighting for my attention. We get off at Town Hall in the center of Sydney. It's Friday afternoon, so it's mayhem. We take forever to find the right shop. You don't need to have had a brain injury like me for this to be relevant. The trauma of my accident can teach us all something about our lives.
2: With the smartphones, we carry in our pocket a little digital computer that connects us to pretty much everybody on the planet. And you can connect 24-7, so you're now constantly multitasking and trying to do all kinds, juggling all kinds of things. And that tends to deplete uh, the, the, the reserve, the mental reserve, probably some of the uh, glycogen and glucose supplies in the prefrontal cortex that make the brain work. So even though it seems to be something we think is, we're good at, we, in fact, are not.
1: David Strayer is a professor of cognitive neuroscience in the Department of Psychology at the University of Utah.
2: I bet most of the people who are listening to this think that they're good at multitasking. That's just the, that's the statistics. But the uh, the evidence is actually really clearly the opposite. We are not good at multitasking. Our brains tend to just do one thing at a time, even though we have billions of neurons. In terms of our behavior, we're really just doing one thing and then one thing and switching back and forth. And that switching from one activity to another is is very difficult to do. It's mentally demanding. There are a handful of people who, t- who tend to be much better at it than most. And uh, we kind of refer to those as super taskers. And we found out that no, about 2% of the population are these extraordinary uh, people who can multitask like we all think we can. When we tried to study that, systematically by looking at you know what happens in the brain and, and, and uh you know looking at neuroimaging and EEG studies, you can clearly show the brain becomes kind of overloaded when we try and multitask and that um, we just don't do it as well.
1: My head's full of work. Hi I'm Jenny Brocky tonight on Inside I'm a journalist five, at SBS TV. I'm also managing our household our wrangling our kids they are two and five. Ow. Ow. We don't have any other family in Australia. My partner's frantic running his arts organisation. I still keep a busy social life. I love late nights out in hectic loud bars, drinking with friends. But after the accident, I can't do any of this. I can't multitask.
2: you are putting uh, heavy demands on uh, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the frontal part of the brain, the most uh, uh, recent developments in terms of prim- the primate's brain that are involved in things like planning and decision-making and problem-solving and working memory and executive decisions, kind of the kind of the, the thinking part of the brain in many respects. Uh, but it's also the part of the brain that's coordinating multitasking, uh, and when we see people who do uh, and constantly are kind of shifting back and forth between this task and the next over the course of a day, you see that the, those those areas of the brain become very metabolically active and over time fatigued. Uh, and so if you think about that brain drain, at, at the end of a couple of hours of that, you're just kind of like, you're, 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 you're uh, kind of completely depleted. And so what we're seeing is the metabolic energy that's used by that frontal thinking part of the brain uh, is is depleted. Um, And one of the best solutions that we found is to, okay, set that aside and go out and walk for a little bit. Uh, You don't then use those prefrontal regions of the brain to kind of try and multitask and you restore those areas. And that's why we see these bursts of creativity after you've set a problem aside for a while, You're, you're letting the brain rest and come back to a more kind of reset.
1: Does it matter where you walk?
2: Probably. So what we're seeing is that um, if you're, would say, walking in a busy urban area with lots of traffic and things you have to interact with, lots of man-made things that have a lot of you know, horns honking and so forth, that's probably not going to be so restorative. It may still have physical benefits in terms of helping the, you know, the, 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 the exercise part. Um, But the best place to do it is in a park or if you can go on a hike in the bush or something like that where you can kind of get away from it all. Um, That tends to be more restorative. Over the last uh, decade, we've seen a really big change in how people live. They're much more tethered to their phones. What my question has been, and there's a number of researchers who are asking, what impact does that change in technology have in terms of uh, how we think, our, our, our social-emotional part of the brain, our cognitive-mental uh, thinking part of the brain, um, and, and kind of the stress levels.
1: Before the accident, I liked a bit of gardening and camping and hiking, but it wasn't a big part of my life. I didn't own a hiking tent or backpack. I learned to meditate about six years ago, but I haven't done it in ages. I was pretty content with my jam-packed life and I kept trying to cram more in. When I was knocked off my bike, a car was driving on the wrong side of the road. The doctors said it was lucky I was wearing a helmet. My head could be way worse. But at this point, the focus is on my shoulder injury. 10 days after the accident, I somehow catch a crowded bus in rush hour and walk towards RPA Hospital. I find the fracture clinic, and it's clear why the discharge doctor suggested arriving before it opened. It's chaos. There's no order to who's being called. The TV blares in the waiting room, I can't bear it. I try the corridor but there are two women chatting, it's too much for my head. I retreat outdoors. I sit on a bench and just watch the rain in cars. This is maddening. I haven't learned yet to just sit and be, but I'll be forced to get better at this very soon when these days turn to weeks and then months. It's hours later when I see the shoulder surgeon. First I see his registrar. I record our consult on my phone because I've been struggling to remember stuff and I can't write because my shoulder's in a sling. My head's super foggy. Maybe it's from the endone I'm on for my shoulder pain. Or is it the head injury? I can't concentrate on what people say to me. I'm really struggling to manage the treatment for my shoulder.
3: So what I'll do now is I'll just have a look and see. Do okay. you have any other medical problems?
1: Um, I've just got the head injury at the yep. moment. Yeah.
3: And how's that? Do you have any nausea vomiting still persisting from that? Or no, any just um,
1: I can't read or anything. I find like, I found it really hard just sitting in the waiting room.
3: Yeah. And who are you? Are you seeing anyone for that? No. Uh, did the the trauma team sort, of sort you out? With anyone to no. see? No, I'll try and tie you in with somebody then.
1: But we move back to my shoulder because that's the focus.
3: Might be even more severe than the X-ray looks. we can't really push it down. More severe, she said. Hmm. I'll get Dr. Smithers in.
1: The register goes off and returns with the surgeon, Dr. Chris Smithers. So the main issue for you, I think, will be discussing the pros and cons of surgery. Okay. We do occasionally operate on grade threes. Um, But, uh, and and that's
2: more commonly in um, patients who do a lot of of overhead activity.
1: The surgeon's right. The follow-up x-ray shows a grade three dislocation. My collarbone is completely separated from my shoulder blade. It's not really clear cut. It's not jumping out to me and saying that, This definitely needs surgery. It's not saying that. Okay. He patiently explains Um, that it's borderline um, whether we need to operate. Part of it's cosmetic. If I can cope with a permanent lump, would he bother? The surgeon pauses. He says he's the same age as me and wouldn't operate if it was his shoulder. I appreciate his frankness. This is information I can follow. It's the book week parade at Billy's school. She chooses Charlotte's web. I glimpse her parading around in her spider's costume that Miles made out of old tights stuffed with newspaper. But I'm overwhelmed by the noises and commotion of the school playground. It hits me like a brick. It's the same when I do the school pick up or drop off. I feel scared. Basketballs, handballs, kids running and screeching well-meaning parents trying to talk to me, people caring, asking how I am, can they help?
4: There was just a completely reduced capacity to concentrate and engage. And as much as you tried to hold conversations, you obviously reached a limit very, very quickly of how much you could listen.
1: Flipping through my diary, opening it to the date of the accident, it makes my chest tighten. I go rigid. There it is, the 8am exercise class I never made it to. Miles take kids to climbing gym, 12.30 to 4.30, Billy to Sophie's party, 5pm, Dahlia and Miriam for early dinner. The next day, family morning walk or bike ride, Bunnings for garden stuff, 2 to 4, Billy to Zara's gymnastics party. Then, my diary's blank. I'm forced to do nothing. Until five days later, in my awkward left-hand scrawl, I write, 10am, doctor. A week later, my diary's filled with friends rostering themselves on to help me around the house and with the kids. Miles often works late. I'm blessed to have an army of supporters who feed us, do our laundry, entertain us and keep us sane. One person on this roster was my friend Sarah MacDonald. We met a few years ago when we were new mothers. You could see it in your face and in your expression and in your body
4: that you were wanting to be able to engage as you would expect yourself to, but you were very clearly unwell. Just you needed small amounts of stimulation before you were, you know, just you you just would look very drained, like someone who'd been, you know, concentrating heavily on something for a very long time.
1: When I tell Sarah Mack that I'm making this podcast, she suggests I record a conversation with her to get her perspective on what I was like. It was such a layered
4: experience, I think, for you that it wasn't just that you were physically depleted, but there was so much else going on in terms of doctors not being sure as to how to respond to the injury and your symptoms and then, you know, the emotional aspects of not working And what that meant, I think what that meant for you was very significant.
1: Sarah Mack looked after me and my youngest daughter, Emerald. She'd pick us up from the light rail station near her house so we could come and hang out, drink cups of tea and eat her yummy food.
4: I don't quite know how you handled it so gracefully, to be honest, because I don't think I would have have felt so locked in by that experience. And I know that you did feel at certain points um that but you also took opportunities to kind of make yourself well and and
1: try different things it's good to hear because sometimes I feel like maybe I was people saw me as a victim that I was that I was kind of just because it went on for so long and I'd get a bit better and then I'd go back again and and I I kind of also had this fear that And I think I still do a little bit that people didn't quite believe me or understand, you know, that there Mm. wasn't, that there was an element of like, really? Because it was such an invisible injury. I think you were very good at just kind of getting stuck in there and not getting weirded out by the fact that I was being weird, you know? It's the end of my second week off work. All I can do is sit out in the backyard and stare at the trees. I'm also drugged up on endone for my shoulder. It's an opiate, a really strong painkiller. But my head's getting worse, not better. This is scary. What's happening? No one can tell me. My GP hopes it's still the endone making me fuzzy. But now I can't even read the school newsletter or picture books to my daughter. It's two weeks after I was knocked off my bike and I'm really struggling to be around my boisterous kids. I record a voice memo after seeing my GP so I can remember what she said. I stand in the street shouting into my phone. Dr Jenny Tai, Tuesday, September the 1st. Re headaches and head injury, she said, to just totally rest for a week. Don't read anything, text, email. Just give it a total rest. She's not too concerned because the headaches. Are, I gave him a five out of ten in terms of um, strength, um, and she said you can get low-level headaches for a few months from mild concussion. However, she wants to reassess me in one week, so I need to make an appointment for next Tuesday. Basically, I've got a bruising on the brain, and that it, it will be it will be sore, and that. Um, yeah she wasn't concerned that it had got worse in the last week Uh, she said that can be sort of a build-up as well and also written a letter for the police for me to take to the police so they can charge the driver I think that's all thanks My friend, Dahlia invites me to take a break in her quiet apartment at Bondi Beach for the weekend.
5: You were, at the time, having trouble being around a lot of noise and a lot of people talking.
1: I make a discovery. It soothes my head. The headaches are gone. I
5: can think clearly. The fog is lifting. I thought you actually got better even though it wasn't very long that you were here. Um, You seemed to have fewer headaches while you were here. And it was just amazing because you would sit and watch the waves for hours. And that was something that most people just don't have the time or the interest in doing. And then after that, you would feel really good. And I think that was something surprising for me that it would be so quick. We took a lot of walks along the beach and you would sit and watch the waves, look at the water and just um, be calm near them.
1: Later, I chatted to Dahlia and her Bondi home.
5: My name is Dahlia Nassar, I'm a friend of yours. We've been friends for about 10 years. And my professional title is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney. The waves are constant. They don't make any
1: demands on my brain. I don't need to decipher them. I can just let them wash
5: over my head. You were very fragile. You were, I think, a little scared of people, of sounds, of what they can do to you. You were really... Uh, Trying to piece things together but having a hard time, you had a lot of headaches. Everything seemed like an enormous task. You couldn't read, you couldn't watch TV. So things had to be done very slowly and in a very quiet way.
1: I'm super sensitive to conversations around me on the beach. My headache comes back after watching Bondi poses, doing too much exercise, some of them even in bikinis. They interrupt my tranquility. You're actually
5: a philosopher of nature, if I can call you that. You can call me a philosopher of nature. Someone actually called me a philosopher of forests or the trees or something like that. I don't think that's as true because I'm not only interested in forests. Why do you think that staring out at the ocean that weekend helped my brain? The first thing that comes to mind is the importance of our experience of beauty and sublimity in nature. I think it's very few people out there who would deny that... we really do find something beautiful about nature. And that experience of beauty is a calming experience. It can be also exalting, like it really inspires a lot of excitement. But I think in some ways, that experience of beauty makes us uh, feel at home in nature, that there's something about our capacities to experience beauty that cohere with nature. There's some kind of harmony between ourselves and nature, and that is, you could say what we would call an experience of beauty in nature. One of the philosophers that I've worked on, Immanuel Kant, worries about people who don't experience nature precisely because it's such an essential experience, the experience of natural beauty and natural sublimity for our sense of our self and um, our sense of connection to the natural world. Um, So he thinks, imagine people who aren't able to experience nature. What would that be like for them? And for him, who was writing in 1790, that was an impossible thought, but he still ventured it. And today we can definitely think, yeah, actually that's quite possible. In fact, most people aren't experiencing nature most of the time. What did Emmanuel Kant think might happen if humans were deprived of nature? That we would no longer have a sense of uh, connection to the natural world. The fact that our cognitive capacities so well map onto the natural world such that we experience beauty gives us a sense oh we're not just here randomly the other experience that he talks about is the experience of the sublime which for Kant is an experience of excitement and fear I think ultimately in both cases we'd be missing out on essential characteristics of human nature Kant says something that I think super interesting in relation to this he says angels can't experience beauty animals can't experience beauty only humans can and why is that because to experience beauty we have to have certain cognitive capacities we have to have sensibility we have to have imagination and we have to have understanding and it's the way that these sensibility imagination and understanding work together that gives us the feeling the experience of pleasure in beautiful things so I think we'd be missing out on being human in some ways.
1: What was I like to hang out with Like when we came back to your apartment and stuff?
5: It was very relaxing, actually, because you were an easy guest in some ways. You needed lots of times to yourself. So I remember you feeling less headachy, less fatigued, just calmer, more centered in yourself um, pretty quickly after um, taking those walks.
1: I still don't make any connection between the power of the ocean to help my head, the refuge I found in my garden, and the concept of nature as a healer. The doctor asks me to keep a record of my headaches, but I struggle to write. So I start recording voice memos on my phone. Yesterday, I got a headache just with the morning um, stress of trying to get kids out the door, etc. And then I was okay. But then later on, got a headache after uh, writing one text message. Billy turned six a few weeks after I was knocked off my bike. Later we talked about her memories of that time. It just if you start playing with the pen, it will make a pick. The microphone's very sensitive, so any noises you make, like picking a pen or clicking your legs, will pick up on the microphone. What do you remember about the time that Mummy was recovering and that I wasn't working
3: um, I think you went on a lot of bushwalks you didn't read much yeah um I remember you like asking me to like be quiet because like you had you kept getting headaches as well because yeah uh
1: can you remember how you felt while mummy was
3: recovering um Well, sometimes I felt a bit lonely because you always kept going on bushwalks and you also kept having rests and um, also Emerald was, was anyone still having sleeps during
1: your daytime back then? She was, but I found it quite hard to get her to go to sleep because I was supposed to take her in a stroller for a walk around the block and I couldn't push the stroller, so I think she stopped having them.
3: Yeah, um, yeah, because my sister, Emma, was quite little. um, I didn't play with her much, so I felt quite lonely as well.
1: Oh, that makes me feel really sad to hear you say that. I'm sorry, Billy. Like, did it feel like a long time? And were you worried that I might not get better?
3: Well, I knew you'd get better, but it did feel like a long time, but it was like 18 months, and that's a year and more than half.
1: It's Billy's birthday party. The invites went out last month before the accident. A bunch of kids and their parents are descending on our house can't cancel. Birthdays are such a big deal for kids. Billy's already had enough upheaval since my crash. So my parents fly over from New Zealand to help. It's an African-themed party. Billy gets her African heritage for miles. He and my mother create an impressive cake with zebras and tigers climbing up mountains of icing. When we made the invites, I imagined a spring party in our enormous backyard but it rains. We're stuck in our small house, squashed into the living room. Parents and kids and siblings hunker into corners. Super noisy. Pin the tail on the elephant brings a few to tears. I'm almost in tears. Then the rain stops. We run into the garden. My head finally starts to clear. I feel calm being outside. Saw so Dr. Jenny Tai. Uh, she was a bit concerned that I'm getting headaches after being asleep, and also just when I'm resting, when I haven't been around any stimulation. Um, she did also say that the endone can could also be causing some of those headaches. So, and I also wanted to come off the endone anyway, but she said it's important to do it slowly. Hi, great grandma. It's Sarah. Um, I'm sending you a voice email because. I'm not able to send, do emails and uh, things at the moment with my headaches. Uh, I'm just having to take a break from all that. But wanted to say thank you so, so, so much for the colouring in books and necklaces for Billy. They arrived yesterday and she's thrilled. I'm not even sending text messages at the moment. It's so right. like one word? I think I'm getting there. It's just the head stuff, which is um, taking a little bit of a backward step, but I think nothing to worry about yet. It's four weeks after the accident. I'm easing off the endome, but I'm still feeling tired and foggy. Damn, starting to dawn on me. My brain isn't right. When I left the hospital after the accident, the doctor gave me an A4 page of instructions. By four weeks, my head should be fine, it says. Just like that. If symptoms persist, please seek help. I've reached the end of the four weeks and I feel like I'm getting worse. My GP wants to bring in more experts. Eventually I score a cancellation appointment with a neurologist. I catch two trains to Bondi Junction. I feel nervous and excited. It's a relief to finally be getting some answers. Soon I should know what's wrong. I thought this would all be over by now. I keep telling work I'll return in a couple of weeks. I'm back in another waiting room. I sit for an eternity. Well, half an hour feels a lot longer when you can't distract yourself by reading. I eye out the magazines longingly. At least there's no TV. I'm anxious, is he going to tell me I'll be stuck in this fuzzy headspace? Finally, Dr Ron Granite shakes my hand and welcomes me into his rooms. I'm blowing
4: in through every drive.
1: Brain on Nature was created, written, and produced by me, Sarah Allerley. Olivia Rosenman was co-producer. Ariana Martinez did the sound design and mix. Jonathan Zenti made our theme music. Other music by JT in the Clouds, Epidemic Sound, and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to everyone I interviewed while researching the series. Head to brainonnature.com for more stories and science.
0: A big thank you to Aaron Severson, Mike Lutters, Deb and Vince Garcia, James Brunt, Tara Hudson, Walter Mugden, and Vivian Lang for their support of Out There. Listener support makes this show possible. To become a patron today, head to patreon.com slash outtherepodcast. And of course, we have a link to that on our website, too, outtherepodcast.com. Just click the support tab. Now for community classifieds. Today's classified ad comes from Deanna Jensen, maker of the Trail Journal. The Trail Journal is a pocket-sized notebook with a different prompt on every page for an easy and meaningful record of your hikes. Get 10% off with the code OutThere at DearSummit.com. That's D-E-A-R Summit.com. Promo code OutThere. That's it for this episode. Alex King is our strategic advisor, Jessica Taylor is our advertising manager, Laura Johnston heads up our ambassador program, and our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. Also, special thanks to Ben Montoya for production assistance on the interview you heard with Sarah Allely. We'll see you in two weeks, and in the meantime, have a beautiful day, be bold, go outside, and find your dreams.